All right, everybody, welcome to episode two of RT Audio. This is a special week, isn't it, Greg? Yeah, it is. Uh, this is uh, RT Week. It's the time we celebrate ourselves and also celebrate our profession. That's right. October 20th to the 26th. Um, this is all about inspiring excellence in respiratory therapy. So uh, if you're around the college, a couple things we're going to be doing is our students are taking charge and running an information booth down in front of the bookstore. Uh, they'll have all sorts of demonstrations of things that we do as a profession and um, educating the student population around Fanshawe. We're also having a kind of a fun Halloween themed uh, potluck that uh, we're going to take some donations for and raise some money for the United Way. And I believe we're also having some educational events that are linked with some of our clinical partners. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a great week. I'm excited for it. Hopefully you guys out there listening are doing something as exciting for our tea week. Um, like I said, it's about inspiring excellence in what we do every day. Um, be proud of the work you guys do and let everybody know uh, who comes in contact you this week. What is a respiratory therapist? Tell them all about what we do and let's make the world understand what RTs are and how valuable we are for our healthcare society. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the main things that I get when I say, oh, you know, someone asks me, what do you do, Greg? And I say, I'm a respiratory therapist. And I initially get that blank stare. And then about three seconds later, I get, so what is that? Uh, what's some of your best examples that you've had when having some conversations about? Oh, there's been... There's been lots of confusion when ask uh, when people say, so what do you do? What, what does a respiratory therapist do? And you know, so you'll say common things like, oh, we we you know run mechanical ventilation. Or uh, I remember one individual and I said uh, we help with mechanical run me mechanical ventilation. He thought I was referring to the the HVAC systems in our house. So he started to ask me how he could arrange his ductwork in his basement for his air heating and cooling system. And I quickly stopped him and said, I'm not your guy for that. Um, you got some issues with your lungs. Maybe we'll talk, but that's not what we were meaning. So. We do blow a lot of hot air. So <laughs> That's true. Um, you know what? We thought for this week, such an important week for respiratory therapists, we have to have a guest that is inspiring for not only you and I, but I think probably a lot of RTs in our country. You know what, this person is someone that I've learned so much about. Uh, he's taught me so much about mechanical ventilation, uh, trying to set optimal PEEP, non-invasive ventilation. He is Mr. PEEP, I think that's what we should just call him. Maybe that's what this episode should be called, oh, Mr. Mr. PEEP. Peep. There you go. <laughs> uh, but he's also someone that, that's, he's inspiring. You know, when you listen to him talk, you kind of come away and you're like, I want to be better, I want to do more, I want to know more. 100%. I want to be able to, you know, have a good understanding about what the research says and how I can really use that to help and benefit my patients. Yeah, I agree. Um, if you guys haven't kind of clued in who we're talking about, this, this in my opinion, is probably one of the most influential RTs in our area, in maybe our country, and in my opinion, in our, well, in my time as a, a respiratory therapist. Um, it's Thomas Perano. He is someone who has... Uh, influenced my practice made me strive for being better and I first and foremost I want to say thanks to Tom because he has done so much in our profession that I think uh, he set the bar and that's challenged me to be better and I owe that to him so just to kind of introduce Tom Tom is somebody hopefully most of our listeners know. He's done a ton of local, national, and international presentations. 
Uh, he's got multiple publications in things like the CJRT, um, the AARC Journal, the Respiratory Care Journal. He sits on both of those editorial boards, I believe. Yeah, and so a lot of his publications are related to mechanical ventilation, uh, ARDS ventilation strategies, uh, trying to find ways to set optimal PEEP. I think one of the most impressive publications that he's ever done, in my opinion, is he made it into Egan's. Yeah. Tom's in Egan's. That's our Bible. I remember when that chapter came out and Tom was in Egan's, I thought, oh man, this like he's he's there. He's he's Mr. Peep for sure. And his his chapter on um, monitoring patients in the ICU is it's a great one. There's there's your reading for this week, guys. Go out. Eleventh uh, edition of Egan's uh, flip to chapter fifty one. There's some, some great knowledge and some great things you can take back uh, to your bedside. Uh, Tom's also won a number of awards that we just like to highlight. He was a winner and recipient of the Specialty Practitioner of the Year in Adult Critical Care from the AARC. Um, one that we're kind of proud of is he's a Fanshawe Distinguished Alumni Award. Um, oh yeah, he's also won that Victor Mosher Award when he was a student. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, Greg, do you know anybody else that won that Victor Mosher Award? I think that might be my claim to fame. You know, I, I won the I've won the same award uh, that Tom has won. Um, so I've got some high hopes for myself. I got to start picking some big up a shoes to fill yeah. here. Yeah, he's also had multiple awards with CSRT uh, provincially with the RTSO. Um, he's an assistant clinical adjunct professor for the Department of Anesthesia at McMaster University, and uh, his current role, he's clinically or currently the clinical specialist of mechanical ventilation for the Center of Excellence in Mechanical Ventilation at St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto. And I mean, that just, just sounds like a dream yeah, job. Just absorb that title for a second. That's yeah. that's pretty cool. So that's, that's that's definitely like a dream job. So we're pr- pretty proud to call uh, Tom a colleague, a peer. Uh, he's a, a Fanshawe alumni of 2003, and you've had the great pleasure of sitting down with Tom recently and. Uh, get to pick his brain a little bit about some of the research he's doing, some of his passions, and um, hopefully get our listeners to get as inspired as we are by Tom. Yeah, I think this is a great time. Let's uh, you know, let's go ahead and let's start this interview and let's uh, see what Tom has to say. Great. Hope you guys enjoy. Oh, thank you very much. That's a, that's a very kind, <laughs> very kind thank you and a very kind welcome. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big connoisseur of podcasts. So when you, I think, was it you or Dave that sent me the message to say, we'd be on our, whoever it was that sent me the first message that we'd be on our podcast, the answer right away was absolutely. Yeah, I think so. when uh, we realized you were coming out here today, it was an ideal opportunity to kind of reach out. And uh, do you want to start off by, do you have any podcasts that you would like to listen to that you'd like to share? Um, actually, <clears throat> yeah, let me see. I'll just quickly uh, open up my podcaster of choice here, my little app here. And because there's a couple I think are, are interesting. Um, so I just subscribed to this one because uh, I couldn't remember the name of it. So I found it. Um, I listen to a few different ones. I'm a big tech nerd. Um, I use a lot of Apple products, but I also use Windows products. So sometimes I, I subscribe and unsubscribe to things like Windows Weekly. Um, but Mac Break Weekly is another one that I listen to. But in terms of like cool stuff more related to the work that I'm involved with, um, I listened to one called More or Less by BBC, and it's sort of an epidemiology-based podcast. Um, uh, there's another one I listened to that's called uh, The Pump Handle Podcast, which is also another uh, epidemiology-based one. And Epidemiology Counts uh, from the Society of Epidemiology is another podcast I listen to. So those are the nerdy podcasts I listen to. And other ones, uh, sort of cool ones, are Radiolab is one. Um, this American Life is another one. A lot of people know about This American Life. But then what some people won't or don't know about me, and we'll probably get into it, 
is that uh, I grew up listening to punk music, and I'm still I still consider myself a punk, and I listen to heavy music. So I listen to a podcast called Turned Out a Punk, and it's where uh, it's actually a, a friend of mine, uh, Damian Abraham, <clears throat> he interviews people that are either still in punk bands or used to be in punk bands, like from the 70s, 80s, 90s, you, you name it. So half I'm, I've actually I just recently subscribed or resubscribed because I had totally forgotten about the podcast. I don't know how. And then I, I basically downloaded like I think 30 episodes. So I've been I've been catching up on the back catalog of that one. So it's it's called Turned Out a Punk. And if you don't like punk music, you won't find it interesting at all. And another punk related podcast is called One Life One Chance by Toby Morris. He's a singer of a punk and hardcore band called H2O. Um, so that's pretty much that's my podcast feed right there. That's, nice. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm kind of glad you didn't come up with uh, any other RT podcast because that kind of really highlights that, you know, maybe uh, we're doing something good here by creating this uh, respiratory specific uh, yeah, podcast. The only, the only other one I know of that I did subscribe to was the Respiratory Care podcast, but re- the Respiratory Care podcast, and I, I'm, I'm on the editorial board, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saying this not negatively at all, but if you read the journal, you probably won't find much use out of the podcast unless they've changed the format. But the format basically was them describing the papers that were published. So it's more people that don't have time to read all the articles. Um, It's sort of a summary of what's published in that month's journal. So I started listening to it and I was just hearing them say the things that I was already gathering because I read not just the table of contents, but I would read all the abstracts and the papers that were of particular interest. I would actually read the full paper. So it became like okay it's one more podcast i have to catch up on when i see a badge on my on my phone that says 10 unread podcasts i'm like or unlistened to podcasts i'm like i need to clean it up a bit so i I unsubscribe to it but i i'm a member of the aarc i pay for the journal and i read the journal so it it seems sort of a not necessary one so this it was cool when i heard you guys were doing this i'm like that's great i would have thought of doing the same thing if i had more time to do it because i love podcasts and i've had podcasts in the past that were all tech related but nothing respiratory related because i hadn't met nerdy people like me that would actually be interested in it so i'm really glad that you guys have taken it on and i'm glad i'm one of your sooner first guests i think i think you're our first guest oh there you go so i'm very very honored and uh, i'll be more than happy to come back for uh for other episodes so yeah just let me know Good, awesome, thank you. So let's kind of get started off with uh, some first questions here, and let's kind of go back to, um, you know, it seems like you've had an interesting uh, childhood and teenagehood. Uh, you started, you know, talking a little bit about your music choice. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the younger Tom? Yeah, the younger Tom was, uh, <laughs> I, I actually gave a talk to a group of students going into clinical year um, just last year, so you know a bit more about my past than probably most people do, and all those students know more about my past now. But essentially, I was probably, you know, one of those people that you would expect, like, you know, not probably going to turn out, you know, the way I have anyways. I don't want to say turn out good or bad, but I wasn't exactly a star, a star example of, uh, you know, a a, a good kid. Um, I was an honest kid. You know, I was honest and uh, I understood right and wrong. I didn't have issues like that. I wasn't, you know, I didn't do any time in jail. I was arrested for doing bad, like <laughs> for doing for joyriding, but uh, that was uh, another. That's another story that nobody else knows about. Not even your students know about that. So I made some stupid choices, but you know, I I, I never did time. I was <laughs> I wasn't actually incarcerated or anything like that. So I wasn't that bad of a kid. So that's not where your tattoos come from. No, no, no. My tattoos are just my love of punk rock and skateboarding, and just that you're kind of surrounded by that sort of. Uh, so yeah. So for those who don't know, they usually see me speaking. I'm wearing a suit coat or something, but. I have uh, quite the extensive collection of tattoos on my arms and legs and chest and everywhere. So, um, But no, so I was into skateboarding a lot. That's really what my first 
taken to sort of like social um, groups and hanging out with people like outside of my home as a child was I started skateboarding and skateboarders I grew up in a town called Woodstock small town and a lot of skateboarders there um, we, we got up to no good it was a small town with not a lot to do and we got up to no good so I, I got into drugs and alcohol uh, as a teenager and I'm not ashamed of telling people now because I don't touch the stuff and haven't since I turned 19 so it, it's it's um, it's just something I choose not to do now uh, I had a moment in 2004 where I, I started to fall off the wagon in terms of like not doing any substances, but I, I got myself back on track in a very short time, and it never became a problem. It was social. So I started socially drinking and stuff, and I'm like, what am I doing? This is not me. This is not what I've become. So I haven't, I haven't touched a substance uh, since uh, 2005, so it's like 14 years. Wow. And prior to that, it had been since uh, um, 1997. So 97 to 2004, didn't touch, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, didn't do drugs, nothing. And then 2004 to 2005 was a weird time in my life. And then 2005, I got straightened out. I met my wife, we got married, all that stuff. And basically, I've never looked back. And it, it wasn't, it's not a lifestyle for me. Um, I'm a very passionate person. I get very excited about things. And the last thing you want someone to get excited about is substance abuse. So it's just better that I stay clear of it. And yeah, so it's... It's been the best decision to stop that stuff and get out of my life, but it was very challenging, actually. So by the time, just a little bit backtracking. So that was me. I got into that, like, punk music, skateboarding. I started playing in bands. My dad's been in a band since before I was a twinkle in his, him and my mother's eye. Um, so he's, he's a drummer. Uh, growing up, I had to choose. I couldn't play drums because you can't have two drummers in a house. It just doesn't work out. So I chose the other rhythm section. I played bass guitar. Um, and then when it came time to sort of finish high school and figure out what you want to do with your life, I had no clue. I knew that I liked two courses in school, biology and chemistry. They actually were the ones that interested me enough, which was strange for a punk rock skateboarding, you know, bass playing person to be in. Those are my classes of interest. And I didn't find math to be challenging, but I didn't find it to be overly interesting. Um, I, tr I tried physics and I dropped out of my physics class within three weeks because they started off with like light and prisms and stuff and I just I'm like this is physics like give me a break this is ridiculous so I went to a private career college and learned how to do uh, phlebotomy and ECGs so like patient care stuff so that the course was a medical lab assistant course and I was working for a few months and I was working with a lady in the lab and she said to me one day she goes are you, are you gonna go back to school I, I I call her like my my, my spiritual mom <laughs> because she sort of saw in me you know she's like I feel like and it's weird because I, I love my parents obviously but they they were surprised when I when I started doing well in school they were like what it must be an easy program so I'll, I'll talk a little more about that later but um, <clears throat> When I took this um, lab assistant course, it was a private career college. It was expected to be a little bit e easier, like it's not a full you know, college or university program. So I finished that, I was working, and this lady is like, are you going to go back to school? Like, I think you have more potential than you're giving yourself credit for. And I was like, I thought about it. And she goes, well, what would you want to do? And I said, I don't know, maybe nursing or paramedic or something to do with patients. I like working with patients. I like helping people. And I liked, I liked the science behind it. And there was no science, very minimal science in a lab assistant. Like, I, I thought ECGs were cool the ECG would give you an interpretation so I would sometimes like look that up which required going to a library at the time which <laughs> didn't really have much there wasn't much available on the internet yeah. um, so it came down to she's like well you know what I think you would like respiratory therapy and I had no idea what that was I'm like what is respiratory therapy 
So she's like, you know, I know two RTs. Uh, I think you should talk to them. One of them was retired and actually had just opened up a coffee shop downtown London at the time because I was living here in London, Ontario. And uh, <clears throat> the other one was clinically working. Um, so I met them both, and I was like, well, that sounds really interesting. They said, yeah, you know, you work with breathing machines and life support systems and this and that, and they talked about oxygen and ventilators, and they said, you know, there's a, when you're learning about it, there's a bit of physics and math, and I went, oh, physics, come on. I'm like, what does light have to do with, uh, <laughs> with ventilating people? They're like, no, like physics, like fluid motion and, you know, um, pressure and, you know, Boyle's Law and stuff. I'm just like, oh, this is stuff that I'm not, I'm not remembering from even from my science classes. I'm like, okay, that sounds like it might be more interesting. So I applied to respiratory therapy and I got denied. And this was this has been ongoing joke with all of the old faculty. I shouldn't say the word old. The longtime <laughs> faculty because they're not old. Just they've been faculty since I've been a student. This is the longtime joke with them because uh, um, they wouldn't let me into the program. And you know now they're like, well, I guess we weren't the best at selecting people at the time. Um, so anyways, I wasn't accepted, but they pre-accepted me into what's called a pre-health science program. So they're like, okay, you don't meet the requirements for this, but we'll put you into a pre-health science program. It's a one-year college program where your courses are, you know, math, biology, chemistry, physics, English, etc. So I saw physics on a list and I went, this better be the good physics. <laughs> and it was actually, and it was actually my best, the best course I had was physics. The highest mark I had was physics. Uh, it was fantastic. And then right up there was anatomy and physiology. I shouldn't say biology. It was anatomy and physiology, to be more specific, and chemistry. And they were incredible. English was fine. You know, I got a good grade, but I didn't really care for that, that class so much. Um, and so when I took those courses, uh, the, math, the math class was funny because math seemed so easy to me because um, I don't struggle with math. I didn't, and I don't really... I didn't really care for it at the time because it wasn't a really applied math. So when we started, I started doing the pre-health science math course. I asked the teacher if there was a challenge exam, and there was. So I wrote it, and I you have to get a certain mark on it. I passed it, and I didn't have to take math. So that was great. I didn't have to take the math class. The second semester, I decided to take it anyways. I just never went to class. I basically wrote the exam at the end, and I passed it, and everything was good. You have to get a second. You have to get a certain percentage in that course in order to get accepted to one of your choices at the college that still they still kind of have that program and how that sort of works yes. like sort of the top of the class from pre-health may have a selection of what they go in it's probably still a selection process uh, but so i think it's like a grid system and the higher the marks you have the, the better chance you have right. of getting into your program of choice gotcha so basically after pre-health science i was able to get into the program and then i entered respiratory therapy and it was it was great um i really enjoyed it the funny thing was, at the same time I'm going through respiratory, I'm in a band that is recording a record, an album, we're on a record label, all of the breaks in between, you know, first and second year, and then March breaks, etc., we're taking that time to go on tour or go into the studio and record. Um, so it was an interesting time for me that by the time I was finished, um, I got offered a full-time job. This, this, is, this is the most, I always joke about this, I got offered a full-time job, and my response to the person interviewing me was, do you have casual? She's like, you mean like a casual position? I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, we just told you we have full-time. Didn't you just graduate? Like, don't you want a full-time job? And my response was, well, my band needs to go on tour. <laughs> so I don't know if I can commit to full-time right now. <laughs> so when I say it, I can, I can never say this story without laughing my butt off because it's like, it's unbelievable. Like this is, so when people talk about where I've, you know, 
how far I've made it in my career or whatever. They're like, wow, look at you now. And, this and I was like, yeah, you have no idea how many stupid decisions I've made. <laughs> like, so many stupid decisions, including not taking my first full-time job when it was offered to me. Like, so it's not like I was born, you know, uh, someone who seems super motivated and makes good decisions. I made horrible, horrible decisions. And it really wasn't until I stopped playing music sort of as a thinking it was going to be a job. I, I still play music, but um, thinking it was going to be a career. Once I got that out of my head and realized well, I have a career, um, how can I sort of try to do what I do daily to the best of my ability? That's where my obsessions change from, okay, I'm not going to obsess about trying to be in this band that's not going to go anywhere now. I'm not obsess about being a respiratory therapist. And that's where I thought to myself, okay, how, do, how does that work? And you know, how do you become you know good at what you do and uh, really what comes down to it is that as you work clinically and I'm actually here to give a talk to students uh, in a little while about research um, <clears throat> but as you work clinically you have a choice you can be the person that once you're done school you're a content expert from what you've just learned and then day to day at the bedside what happened to me that sort of opened my eyes and you have a choice to either be this person who works at the bedside and sort of waits to be told what to do or you know what to do because you just got taught in school. But once you leave school, when research is constantly being published all the time, constantly coming out, it's gonna get to a point eventually in your career where someone's gonna be telling you what to do because you're not sure what the best thing to do is anymore because of current research. So you need to be able to understand and read and interpret and, and not necessarily be involved. You don't have to perform research. You just have to read and understand it to a point where you know when someone tells you what to do or asks you what to do, I shouldn't say tell you, but you know, some of us get in situations where we're told what to do. But if someone asks you to do something and you don't know the logic behind it, you can't advocate if it's actually the wrong thing to do. And the only way to know that is by reading and understanding research. And that's where that's the only reason why I've gotten to where I've gotten today, which we can we can I'll let you ask more questions to ask me where I'm at today, but that's just sort of my, my quick and dirty about young to where I'm at now, sort of the things that influence me to get to where I'm at now is just wanting to do the best thing for my patients. Um, but realizing that in order to do that and not be told what to do and be able to advocate the best is you need to be aware of what the current research suggests we're doing at the bedside. Because if you're relying on every physician you work with in a critical care environment anyways, to be up to speed on all the literature, there's so much being published that if they don't have a personal interest in, for example, mechanical ventilation, they might not be aware of what's going on in mechanical ventilation, so somebody has to be. So I'll stop there for a moment because otherwise I'll just ramble on and maybe that's what <laughs> maybe that's what you wanted, but I'll let you ask some more specific questions. This is great so far. Uh, a few more questions I definitely want to try and get through. What would be your advice to students and also practicing respiratory therapists uh, at how to understand and be able to critically appraise and analyze some of the literature and some of the research that's out there? I think one of the first steps and one of my early steps in terms of getting interested in research was actually attending a conference. Because when you attend a conference, you're gonna end up listening to people and speakers that are picking specific topics. And when you present a topic, you have to do some background work on it. So it's either some or a lot of background work. And depending on the quality of the speaker or what they're talking about, they may have done an extensive background check I'm basically presenting what the current literature suggests. Um, and for conferences, there's the different types of conferences. I found, to be perfectly honest, like I'm a big supporter of the Canadian Society of Respiratory Therapy, um, and the conferences are fantastic and great. 
Um, but if you have a specific niche, like my niche, and I apologize to everybody, I said I know nothing about anything else but than critical care. Like you talk to me about mechanical ventilation, non-invasive ventilation, then I'm fine. But you ask me like what's new in pulmonary function, I have no idea. Right? I'm just not. So <clears throat> what the CSRT conference does, and this is actually, it's nice for members, is that they do have sort of streams. They traditionally have had streams where you sort of pick your topic of or your interest of choice, and you have different options during the day. And there would be, so a lot of the talks are, again, people like myself or other people that are in clinical educator positions sort of talking about the work that they're doing. And I think that's fantastic. It's a great way to highlight the work being done here. But what I was hungry for at the time when I started going to conferences is I wanted to know what's new in the literature and what's a summary of a certain subject. And I, I didn't see that going on specifically at the CSRT conference uh, at the time that I started going to conferences. So I, went, I attended the AARC conference, so the American Association of Respiratory Care. I attended their conference, and the first one I went to, I th think it, it might have been Vegas. They're off almost every, every third year they're in Vegas. Um, and I attended that conference, and I remember going to a talk specifically. It was like how to set PEEP in your patient. It was so specific. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't about like how we implemented a protocol to better ventilate our patients, which to me, like at this stage in my career, are fantastic talks to go to because it talks about how people, the struggles they had in implementing it in the practice. And that's where I think the CSRT conference is actually really good. If you're a clinically working RT and you kind of know the background, you have a bit of ba that background knowledge about what's probably right. You want to know how people implemented this stuff. You want to know people's personal experience in their um, hospital or in their intensive care unit or on their wards or whatever. But <clears throat> at the time that I wanted to learn more and more about it, I really wanted those basic subjects like, you know, how like, how to set PEEP, how to do recruitment maneuvers. Like, are they necessary? So there would be pro-con debates, right? So pro-con debate, like, should you prone your patient, yes or no? Like, these were the kind of talks that, that were going on. And... Both of the presenters are literally just providing all of the stuff that they've been reading about for months and summarizing the literature. And half of them don't even share that stance. Like the pro-con debates were great because I attended a pro-con debate one in my earlier years of the AARC and it was for and against doing esophageal pressure measurements. And I'm in the audience and someone puts a picture online and they said, we got this picture from Tom Perino's group up in Canada. And I started giggling to myself because I'm like, I don't remember giving him that picture. But obviously, I said, but at least he gave me credit. Like at least, so somebody was sharing the picture and I, and I didn't care. I didn't care if he had it, but it was a picture of a tracing from, from, from a ventilator. And he made a comment saying like, oh, I've never seen cardiac oscillations that good on a patient. So it's funny because I approached him afterwards, I introduced myself. I'm like, hey, I saw you use my picture. That's great, you know. And then I explained to him, I'm like, usually the problem with cardiac oscillations is the scale of the ventilator. And he goes, he goes, yeah, you know, you're right. And he goes, and I just want to tell you, he goes, I'm actually a supporter of esophageal pressure manometry. He says, I just, I was given the con debate. And I'm like, that's when I learned first off that these people in the pro-con debates don't necessarily take that side. Sometimes they absolutely do, for sure. I've seen pro-con debates where it's absolutely one versus the other, and they, these people specifically have these opposing views. But in this case, the person didn't have an opposing view. He just had to present the opposing view. So it's just, it was just funny. So, but the good thing is, is that these opposing views are things that you have to be aware of. If you totally believe in one thing or the other, you have to know what the opposing views are because you either can explain them or they may open your eyes to like some of the limitations to something. So I found that those conferences, I started attending them regularly. So I've gone to every AARC for the past, since uh, 2009. I've gone to every AARC except one 
and it was because it was at the time that my daughter was just born, and that would have been really bad practice for me to go to a conference the day. <laughs> the, the Life would it's not like, have been honey, happy. I know you're expecting, but I'm going to go to a conference right now. Uh, no, so I didn't go to the conference when my wife was expecting our daughter. So that was the one concert I missed, and that or concert conference I missed, and that was uh, it'll be eight eight years ago this November. So it was, it was it was in Tampa. So I missed the Tampa conference eight years ago. But every year since then, I have been to every AARC conference and every CSRT conference because I find them both to be extremely useful and for different different reasons as, as I described so when people if anyone asks me like which conference should I pick to go to I tell them I said if, if you can swing going to both I said go to both because they they offer different experiences different knowledge sharing and they both have extreme uses and and I, I know you can see the taught similar talks like that are given at the CSRT at AARC but I'm never at them because I'm always going to the ones that are a bit more juicier like have a bit more of the overall view of something and then the, the trade show floor is insane at the AARC. Like it's 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 ridiculous. Like I think a low attendance for the AARC is five thousand wow. RTs. So it, it's quite a different scale. But the CSRT one is just fantastic because it really is a highlight of what's going on across Canada with our, with RT practice. And so I I think they're both great. And if people can swing both, they should obviously do both uh, for sure. And same with the memberships, like I'm a membership for both. Um, the AARC membership does give you access to respiratory care, which some articles are open open access online, but others aren't. And um, yeah, I sound um, I'm a little I'm probably a little bit biased because I do publish a lot in respiratory care, and I'm one of the editor I'm on the editorial board, um, but I'm also on the editorial board of the Canadian Journal of Respiratory Therapy, so I'm kind of biased for for both. So, <laughs> but as a Canadian, I sound biased towards the AARC, but it's because I, I've I've had a lot of uh, I've done a lot of work with them and. It's, they're very good. Uh, Yvonne uh, Drasovian is going to be really excited hearing that because uh, she does a lot of uh, debates with her mechanical ventilation class, mm -hmm. uh, you know, debating pressure control versus volume control and uh, different PEEP strategies. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it just gives her some, some, some bonus for why she's doing that, for having her students to really understand both sides of some of the, the stories behind what they're doing and why they're doing it. So. Yeah, the pro, the pro cons are great at conferences. So I, I've had to do a pro-con debate um, at this, the AARC two years ago, and I have to do one again this year. Um, and what I tried to do the last one, so it was the first and only one that I had done so far. When I, I wanted to make sure that when I left, however, that the audience didn't think that they had to take a stance. I wanted them to just understand that we're up here to give you a pro-con debate. These are considerate. All of the considerations are true. They're all things you need to consider. But you know looking at the actual evidence there is evidence to support doing this but you need to understand the limitations or the maybe the dangers of doing something right um, so I think it's important that the audience doesn't leave confused um, so the pro-con debates are great because it gets both sides out but it, ultimately someone has to say listen the evidence either does or doesn't support it so a good example for example is pressure control versus volume control there's no evidence that one gives better outcomes than the other currently and the evidence that there's more work of breathing for someone who starts breathing in volume control. Their limitations of that study is they use very low flow rates, for example. So as long as someone to describe the limitations, when people do find differences, if there were limitations in the methods, et cetera. And this is where reading and understanding research is very important as well. Um, yeah, pro-con debates are great for getting that out there, but as long as people don't leave confused at the end of it, that's, that's sort of the goal of them is just open people's eyes, but not leave them totally polarized to the issue. So let's kind of uh, talk about your current role, you know, Clinical Specialist of Mechanical Ventilation uh, for the Center of Excellence in Mechanical Ventilation. Sounds like a pretty cool role. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about what the center is and kind of what your role is involved? Yeah, so the Center of Excellence in Mechanical Ventilation, um, we've had sort of discussions about, you know, do we consider it one site versus all sites in Toronto? So basically the Center of Excellence for Mechanical Ventilation, this concept of being a center of excellence is at St. Michael's Hospital where I work at in Toronto, our goal is to try to implement and to utilize not only current best practice related to like large studies, but also physiology studies where, you know, monitoring certain things just makes sense from a physiological standpoint. And when research going on in Toronto, and this is why if you go to our blog, it's coemv.ca, the Center of Excellence Mechanical Ventilation.ca, it says the Toronto Center of Excellence because really it's all the University of Toronto affiliated hospitals that are doing respiratory research. The reason why we call sort of St. Michael's the center of excellence is because all the research they're doing, we're trying to implement at the bedside. So we're not trying to say we're any better than any of the hospitals. We're just trying to be sort of first to the gate in terms of implementing these cool things that are being done across Canada. So we don't credit ourselves with being a center of excellence for mechanical ventilation research. That's being done all over Toronto. But in terms of like trying to implement it in the bed, into bedside practice, that's actually one of our mandates as being a center of excellence is like, okay, how, so I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Many hospitals aren't routinely monitoring something like P0.1, which is a, the, the occlusion pressure. Many people don't know what it does. They don't know what normal values are, where it's like part of our education. Last year, we have like annual education days. It was making sure everyone understood what P0.1 was, what our normal values, what we're looking at it, and that we should start documenting it. And now when I look at the bedside, I see it being documented. Not all the time. It's a learning, you know, to get everybody on board with documenting something. Um, but what is being documented, for example, is driving pressure, plateau minus peep. Like it's being documented all the time. Um, and making sure we're doing plateau pressure measurements to get that. It's not peak versus peep. It's plateau minus peep. So just things like that. We're trying to make sure that we implement this stuff at the bedside. Um, are there things we can do better? Of course, every hospital can find things that we're... So we're not saying we're the perfect... You know, we're not the center of perfect mechanical ventilation, we're just the center of excellence. So we are trying to implement excellence in mechanical ventilation, and it's a constant process. It's not, you don't achieve that, right? You don't achieve excellence, you, you strive towards it. So we are just constantly trying to implement this stuff. So it's an exciting role for me because as being a big research nerd, um, in terms of reading research, What's interesting is when people say like, oh, did you get the job because you've done a lot of research? And I said, you know what, I've done very few like actual research projects like on my own where like I've collected the data or input the data or whatever. Um, but I read so much research, you become what's considered a content expert. And being a content expert at a place that wants to be a center of excellence in mechanical ventilation was, was key to why I wanted to work there and probably why I, I got the job when I applied that I, I live and breathe this stuff. So when someone says, well, we're thinking of implementing this measurement, I'm like, I know why, because I've read the papers, right? So it's just a matter of, you can, you can make yourself a content expert. Like I keep telling people, I am not special. <laughs> I am absolutely, there's nothing special about my past as I've already described. There's nothing about my upbringing says, well, I was, I was, I was fortunate because of this and because of that. That's why you're where you are today. It's like, no, I just decided to teach myself how to understand research and I didn't take formal classes. We had a class here in school that basically taught you how to read an abstract. Like it really didn't tell you how to critique an article well. Um, I taught myself that, but I did that by asking experts around me. So one of the doctors, Dr. Deborah Cook at St. Joe's in Hamilton is a, is a 
world-renowned researcher. I think she's one of the most published female critical care researchers, if not the most published female critical care researcher in the world. And I knew I was working amongst a, a mentor to many, many people. So I would just ask her every day about, what's a confidence interval? How do I interpret it? Why is it different in this paper or that paper? She's like, oh, well, that's for relative risk, and this is for this and this and this. And so she's explaining this stuff to me, and I'm like, okay. And then once I got a little bit, once I started asking enough questions, I'm like, okay, I think I need to read something now because now I understand a bit. If I probably read more about it, I may actually understand what they're saying. And so I bought a research book, and then I bought another book, like just how to interpret research. And it starts to all fall together. And then when you take a paper that you're reading and you look at it, and you're like, oh, that's what that, okay, I understand that now because everyone knows the p-value. The P0 dot, P.05, less than that is significant. But no one can explain to you why or what that means. And if you say, are you looking at the confidence interval? They're like, what's the confidence interval? So little things like that. I felt I needed to understand this stuff. And then once you start to understand that, you realize that you just start reading papers more thoroughly. If you, even if you don't ever talk to somebody about confidence, I don't talk about confidence intervals at the bedside. But by understanding that stuff, I found myself reading deeper into the paper. And some people would skip the discussion part of a paper, and I think it's absolutely imperative that you read the discussion part of the paper. Not only does it start right off by summarizing what they found, like it's a layman's term summary, the discussion is not technical at all, it's a layman's term summary, and then it tells you limitations that they've actually acknowledged, like, and they will compare sometimes to other studies that have had similar or opposite results and try to explain why. And then they'll talk about areas for future research. And like that section, right alone, if, you're, if you've never read research papers, read the abstract and then read the discussion. Just, just as a practice. I'm not suggesting that's how you read a research paper. But if you've never got into the habit of doing it, the abstract is usually layman's terms. The results are usually all the numbers, etc. So, you know, you can read the start, like the introduction, whatever, the methods. The results, if they seem a bit daunting for you because you've never read research results, you don't understand the confidence intervals and whatever, or the relative risks, uh, or the R-squared values, then skip to the conclusion, fine. Read the introduction to the paper to give you the background as to why they wanted to study it, and then read the discussion. At least to get a sense of why they were doing what they're doing. Again, the discussion starts off by explaining what their results were in layman's terms, and then talks about limitations of it, and then once you get comfortable with that, the stuff in between that is usually the methods, which is extremely important. If you read the methods and they don't make sense, for example, if you're like, we don't practice like that clinically, that makes no sense, then you may want to, that'll be your critique of the article. It's like, well, that's not how we use it here. That's not how we do it here. So that doesn't answer our question clinically. And then, of course, the statistical results section is hopefully they have nice tables and graphs to help you to understand and grasp that. But it's, it's really baby steps. Like once you learn to understand what the research terms mean, like mean, median, mode, standard deviation, interquartile range, confidence intervals, etc. Until then, don't avoid re reading research papers. Like skip the results section if you want, look at the tables, etc., the graphs, and then read the discussion. It's where they put it into layman's terms. But don't stop there. Eventually get to the point where you read the actual results section, but when you're ready to understand it. And that may take a bit more learning on your own. And I think that's the problem is just people need to not a problem, but that's what people need to do is get more motivated to learn and teach themselves on their or take courses. You can take research courses, of course. But seems like some <clears> really, <throat> really great advice for our students, for new RTs and yeah, for absolutely. our school research teams. Yeah. Um, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about your your newest uh, business venture, uh, creating a uh, digital uh, competency-based uh, learning and tracking platform called CompKeeper? Yeah, so I started a, a business called Keeper Web Apps, and the first product that I've launched with Keeper Web Apps is an app called CompKeeper. And basically, it's competencies. You fill the database with competencies. So in the case of respiratory therapy, it's all of our national competency framework uh, profile. You submit the skills to preceptors to sign off, and they basically assess you based on a rating scale, even an attitude scale. They can provide comments and feedback. There's daily evaluations that look at the overall knowledge of the student, whether they were on time, sort of, you know, the sort of day-to-day practice. Um, and so those are sent to preceptors or instructors for evaluation. Um, and yeah, it's just a way of tracking it all digitally. So for an instructor, it's nice if you have sort of a key person in the institution that looks after all the preceptors and all the, and all the students. Um, they can view the activity of all the preceptors and the students. Um, the preceptors themselves only can see the stuff that they interact with the students. So there's a lot of like security safety measures to make sure people only see what they're responsible for. Um, but then the school gets to see all of that. So every institution, every instructor, every preceptor, all the evaluations for all their students, they get this global overview. And then different reports uh, pages can be generated for them, um, like how many you know pending competencies per per site, so they know like which sites are better or not so good at filling out these competencies. The instructors can see all the pending work, etc., uh, so they can remind staff to do it. Um, but yes, basically it's. It's a digital way of doing it. You can do it on any handheld device, a computer, a laptop, a phone, an iPad, tablet, whatever you want. Um, it's all the same app, so you don't download it from an app store. You basically use it. You, every school gets their own in- installation, so you actually get your own dedicated website and server only for your data. Um, and so, yeah, so currently I launched last year, and I have uh, five programs in four schools currently, so New Brunswick Community College, St. Clair College, Conestoga College, and University of Manitoba are the four institutions using it, and there's two programs at St. Clair that are using it. One is the dental program, which was a complete overhaul of the application because it's customizable. I'll basically build it however they want. And yeah, it became my part-time job, meaning it's what I would do on (laughs) vacations, weekends, uh, nights when I get home and the kids go to bed. Um, but once it's launched and once the application is functioning, it's just customer support with actually my, my wife is my, uh, my sole employee right now until I need to hire more people for customer support. She handles customer support emails when I'm not available. If I get an email and it's 6 o'clock at night and I'm just sitting down to eat, then I'll wait till I eat and then I'll go answer the email. Like it's, so it's really not, it's not, hasn't been daunting yet that I have to hire other people. So right now the, the two uh, key employees are me and my wife. So, yeah, and so, so far, so good. So we're still still launching up business, so. Seems uh, like a great uh, great service that you guys are providing. Thanks. Uh, just one last question before we finish up, otherwise. We, we can always do a part two and a part three, too. <clears throat> well, so. you know what? I think at this point we might end up being late for uh, for uh, your next presentation. Yeah. But where do you see, where would you like to see the RT profession with regards to mechanical ventilation going in the future? Um, I, I really just think we need to strive to try to be content experts. You know, I've worked in institutions where we have sort of practice leads and we have educators, and I've worked as these people. I've worked as a practice leader. I've worked as an ed- educator, and every time I was in those positions, I was trying to engage and um, encourage the staff to own this knowledge, like own it. And not everybody has the time to read research, et cetera, but at least know where you can find the information. So if you have an instructor or you have a practice lead, ask them for guidance, ask them for education. Uh, but really, I think the profession needs to sort of step it up a notch. I, th- I see what's probably going to happen in the future. It's going to be degrees entry to practice. I see that coming. Um, 
we're the only people working at the bedside in an intensive care unit that, that is not required to have a degree. Will a degree make us better clinicians? To be honest, no. Will it maybe provide us more skills to understand, read, interpret um, research? Probably. Like this is where these types of courses and these sort of um, you know added learning sort of gets you. It takes you a little bit more serious in terms of the academic standpoint of things. So I think we need to be a bit more academic in our practice. And all that means is learning to understand and interpret research and or know where to find the sources, whether it's Twitter, whether it's going to a conference, just if you can't read it yourself, soak it in somewhere. Go to a conference, go to the CSRT, go to the AARC, soak it up. Bring a notepad and pen and write till your heart's content. Soak it up. Um, yeah, that's, that, I, that's where I hope the profession goes, that we become these content experts at the bedside, not just people that are asked to do something and we do it without question. I really think we need to question. And there are already RTs working 20 years, 25 years that will question everything because they have the clinical experience. And when those people with clinical experience also understand the current knowledge and the research, et cetera, those people are key members of a team. Like they're, that's, that's the ultimate, right? Is clinical experience, but actually understanding that this evidence exists and being aware of it and knowing it is, is key. So hopefully we can all get to there that point at some point. Great. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Tom. Uh, that seems like a great place for us to strive together as a profession. And I just wanted to thank you for uh, taking the time to chat no with problem. us today. And we'll do, we'll, do, we'll do part two. You can think of <clears throat> other questions that I may have skipped over. Awesome. So, thanks, Tom. Good.